Today, we use about a third of the Earth's habitable land, a third, to plant soy and corn to feed the animals we eat. A third of our Earth to do this. Uh, that's actually more food than we feed the billion people who are going to bed hungry tonight. Um, the way we consume meat has been named the number one cause of zoonotic disease, including the zoonotic disease called COVID. Um, the emissions that come from the consumption of animals are more than all the transportation sources combined. Hello, friends and damn givers. I'm Nick LaPara, and this is the Let's Give a Damn podcast, the show you listen to when you want to hear from people who are giving a damn and making the world a much better place in so many unique and meaningful ways. Thank you for hitting play. Thank you for showing up this week. And most of all, thank you for joining us on this journey toward leaving the planet much better than we found it. Now, before I get to my guest this week, this episode comes out on October 25, which means there are just 15 days until Election Day on November 8 here in these United States of America. And it is going to be a doozy, y'all. There have been reports that Trump is preparing to call certain races stolen or fraudulent if his candidate doesn't win. And there have even been candidates themselves refusing to say on the record if they'll accept the loss, if the votes say that they lost. Regardless of what happens on November 8, every single one of you, every single one of us should have a plan for voting early or for voting on November 8. So do you have a plan? Do you know when early voting begins in your state? Do you know where your polling location is? Have you requested time off from work, if necessary, that day so you can go and vote? Listen, friends, our climate crisis is on the ballot. Women's rights are on the ballot. LGBTQ rights are on the ballot. Anti-Semitism is on the ballot. Racism is on the ballot. So vote, 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 vote. Go to vote.org right now. Pause this episode if needed. Go to vote.org right now to find everything you need to vote. Also, I haven't talked about this much on the podcast yet, and I'll plan to do so in more strategic ways here soon. But we recently and officially launched our nonprofit. We are so excited to build a community of generous givers and helpers and we hope that you'll join us. Essentially, when shit hits the fan, we will show up with money, support, and to help out in any way that we can. So if you're interested in learning more, and if you're interested in helping out, and if you're interested in becoming a one-time or recurring donor, please visit letsgiveadam.org. That's letsgiveadam.org. Many have already joined by giving, but we need many many more of you to join us so that we can do this well. Okay, now for this week's guest. I really, really, really like out-of-the-box thinkers and dreamers and makers and creators, which means I really like my guest this week. Josh Tetrick is the co-founder of a company called Eat Just. Now, Eat Just makes a couple of incredible products called Just Egg and Good Meat. You've likely seen Just Egg at your local grocery store. It's in a little yellow bottle, and it's a brilliant egg substitute that is made from the mung bean, 
Yes, it tastes like eggs, it feels like eggs, and it comes from a bean. They're also developing an incredible product called Good Meat. What is Good Meat? Good Meat uses a single cell. Listen to this, and Josh will explain more in the podcast. Good Meat uses a single cell to produce infinite amounts of meat without slaughtering a single animal. Now, if that sounds fucking crazy, it's because it is fucking crazy. And this crazy thing that Josh and his team are doing might just change the world and might just change how we eat and might help save our planet. Josh shares a bit more of a story in our conversation, so I won't get into his history and his story here. I just love Josh. I love this conversation, and I hope this conversation helps you Think more strategically about the who, what, when, where, and why behind the food that you eat. We all have a responsibility to treat our planet well so that our children and their children and their children have a habitable planet to live on. Just Egg and Good Meat are two products that I believe are going to help us get there. Before we get into this conversation, a quick reminder, as always, that you can email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com anytime and for any reason to ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the show, anything really. I just love hearing from you. And now let's get right into my conversation with the brilliant Josh Tetrick. Let's go. Josh Tetrick, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. What's up, Nick? Good to be here. I'm so happy you're here. We tried this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, technology prevented us from actually recording that conversation. So I'm so glad we were able to circle back and do it again. Uh, one disclaimer up front, Josh, I didn't get to say this before we hit re- the, the record button, is that I just finished, it's, after we had to reschedule, I got COVID for the first time in two and a half years. And I tested positive for 12 days until yesterday and tested negative. I have very bad asthma. I'm pretty immunocompromised. And so my breathing is still shit. I just wanted to say that up front that I might have to cough. I might have to get my breath a couple of times. My breathing is still not up to par. One of the downsides of getting COVID while having asthma. So sorry you're dealing with sorry you're dealing with that. I still I probably have gotten COVID, but I haven't noticed it yet. But sorry you're you're uh you're still struggling with that. That's no, that's no fun. Thanks. I mean, honestly, I'm so thankful for, I'm so, we, we've been fairly to extremely careful throughout these last couple of years as much as we can. Um, and I'm so glad that I didn't get it at the beginning, pre-vaccines and boosters, because I'm pretty convinced just because, I mean, I'm healthy otherwise, but I've always had bad asthma. Doctors early on when I was younger said, oh, it'll go away when you get older. If anything, it's gotten worse. And so I'm pretty convinced, and I'll never know, obviously, that if I would have gotten it early on, that I would have been one of the ones that got it very severely, maybe on the ventilator, because just my my lungs aren't amazing. And so the the the, the proof that hopefully these vaccines and boosters are working is that it wasn't that bad. I mean, yes, I'm having some breathing problems, but I'll get over it. Anyway, I just wanted to warn you up front. We don't need to talk about it anymore. Uh, Josh, so glad you're here. How are you doing? How are things going? What are you feeling excited about right now? Uh, things are things are good. Um, what am I excited about? I'm excited about uh, 
Um, the wildlife I see uh, outside my window. I think we got some. We got some owls out here. I'm right next to Tilden Forest. We got some raccoons. We've got lots of bird song and insect song. So I'm excited about that, and I'm I'm excited about uh, the stuff that we do uh, every day at uh, at uh, Eat Just. Um, you know, even though it's we're uh, we're engaged in a really hard uphill climb. Uh, to try to uh, fix the way that we're eating, um, but um, it's worth it, um, and we get to deal with a lot of people that that have that that energy and that want to try to get something important done, and uh, that gives a lot of meaning to every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm. This conversation has been something that I've been excited about for a while because, for a lot of reasons, we focus a lot on. Uh, the environment on this podcast. And I know that's one of the, you know, one of the positive outcomes of the work that you do is just less of an effect on our already tremendous climate crisis. Right. And so that's something we talk about. And I am, people are probably tired of hearing me talk about it on this podcast, but I am a very ardent uh, vegan because of the environment, because of animal cruelty. And we as a family are vegan. And so this We've I've already tasted some of your products uh, many many times. We love them, and so I'm so thrilled to be talking to one of the brains behind uh, all the tremendous work that you all do. Before we get to Eat Just, this company that you have started that is now it's huge, and you guys create so many different things, and will continue to create so many different things. I want to get a. I always love to start these conversations talking a little bit about the background, a little bit about the who, what, when, where, and why, right? Because you didn't just, uh, the work that you're doing now didn't just happen, right? It's it's a result of who you are, just who you came out being as Josh Tetrick, but also the influences around you, the people, places, and things. And so I'd love for you to give us just a few minutes of, or take as long or as little as you want, a little bit of a bio. Where did you come from? What were the uh, influences on your life um, as you developed into the person you are today that started Eat Just? I grew up in uh, in Birmingham, Alabama, so a lot different than where I'm hanging out right now in Northern California. And uh, I didn't grow up there thinking I was going to start a food company. I grew up thinking I was going to play in the NFL. So my obsession uh, wasn't, uh, wasn't all this stuff now. It was how do I get better as a linebacker? How do I figure out a way to get faster? How do I figure out a way to um, get more explosive so I can be better on the field so I can increase my chances of playing in the NFL? So that was me in the South. Um, that was what what every day looked like. That was the, the thing that really guided me, that gave me work ethic, that, um, you know, gave me focus, that, you know, gave me a reason to, to, uh, you know, really get excited about, uh, about what, what's ahead. Um, and then, um, then eventually realized that, uh, after I played a little college football at, uh, at West Virginia, um, that I probably wasn't good enough to play in the NFL, which was sad, but, um, it was a, it was an important truth and I had to figure out, you know, what was next. Um, and the, what was next was really informed by, um, a guy named Josh Bach, who is my best friend to this day and who I met when I was playing football back in, in eighth grade. And, um, 
we became close friends, bonded over sports. And he really, even back in the day when I was 13, 14 years old, began to open my eyes up to pretty basic things like um, animals deserve our attention and respect. And we are mm. also an animal. And to say we are also an animal is both the most obvious factual statement one can ever utter. And also maybe somewhat counterintuitive to people because often people don't think of the human animal, but I'm looking at my dog right now on the couch and she's an animal and those owls that I talked about are an animal. And even those insects are animals and I'm an animal and you're an animal. And I think once you, there's a, there's a paradigm shift that happens once you recognize that we're not, we're certainly unique, just like all animals are, but we don't have to stand so far apart from all the other animals on the planet. And, and it was Josh that really infused that in me. And it was Josh who really opened up my eyes to probably the single most important thing we can do to recognize that. And that is deciding what we eat. Um, so as I was trying to figure out, you know, what I wanted to do next, um, I was was continued to be influenced by Josh. And I spent some time in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I spent some time in law school. Um, but it was really searching for the thing that felt like football to me, <laughs> meaning the thing that really grabbed all of me, the thing that um, just couldn't let go of me. And that became, um, you know, the work that the work that I and my team do today to to try to get things right in, uh, in how we eat meat. You bring up some really interesting stuff. And really, some of the things you mentioned are the reasons why, are one of the main reasons why we shifted things, right? We have created these really interesting categories that don't stand up to any test, really, right? We have, you talked about looking at your dog across the couch, right? We have these, we have created categories for all these different animals and how we view them, obviously, right? This is very obvious, but I don't think pe it's so obvious that people don't really think about it. I have these conversations with people that are interested. I don't know if they're interested in ever making a change in their eating habits, but they're interested in why we made those changes, right? And so they will protect their dogs and cats and right horses and name all the animals that we have put in the category of we, there are pets, we, whatever, we ride them, we feed them, we play with them, they, we play catch with them, but we would never, ever, 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 ever eat them, right? And then they will turn right around and uh, go kill all these other animals that we have deemed. I've never had, well, not that I know, I've never eaten dog, cat, or horse, but I imagine they taste very similar to the other animals that we have deemed eatable, right? Edible. These are the animals that we can eat. These are the animals that we can't. And that to me is one of, that, that to me is a very, it's one of the very first steps in beginning to question what we eat and how we eat, Josh, is by just recognizing, as you pointed out, we are all animals. We are all, we all have value. And that to me is a starting point. It's just looking at that, looking at the dog across the couch and saying that is no different than the cow that produces the burger that I'm going to eat later today, or the, the pig that produces the bacon that I'm going to have tomorrow morning with my breakfast or whatever. That to me is a fundamental starting point. And I'm so glad that you got to experience that earlier on in life. Um, what was your, talk to me about your relationship with before meeting this best friend that changed your perspective 
how to look at food, how to look at animals. Did you ever, I guess growing up in the South, the South is not known, that's sort of shifting, but the South is not known for, you know, uh, vegan and vegetarian cuisine. I, we spent four years in Nashville before coming to New York city and man, we had a hard time going out to eat, finding anything that was uh, vegan. And we got, we, we were made fun of and, and poked fun at quite a bit because so the South is not known for this. So what was your relationship growing up in your family with food? Was there ever a second thought at what we ate or was it just, no, we can eat whatever we want. That's what we get to do as humans. Never a second thought. Um, I grew up eating uh, Burger King chicken sandwiches. Um, I remember my mom used to make me these really tasty chicken wings when I would get off the bus from Chelsea Middle School. Um, I ate all the animals you could you could imagine, eggs in the morning, uh, beef at night, chicken in between, um, you know, good old Southern barbecue as much as I possibly could. Um, that's that's how I ate. And, you know, when I was, if you, um, if I went back in time and I was talking to the 10 year old version of myself, who's there with, you know, three chicken wings in his mouth. Uh, and I said to him, Hey, do you love animals? That 10 year old boy would say, yeah, that's an obvious answer. Why are you asking me that? Uh, of course I love animals. Um, I love, I love lions. I love birds. And then I would stop my 10-year-old self and be like, oh, you love birds? Yeah, I love birds. Well, did you realize that what you're eating is a bird? And my 10-year-old self probably would have been shook by that statement. Because one thing about our current food system is that abstraction um, is a way to mask what's really underneath. It's a way to mask uh, the pain an animal would feel. It's a way to mask the impact to the climate. It's a way to mask zoonotic disease. Uh, and the abstraction is a wing with sauce on it, right? When you're eating a chicken wing with sauce on it, you're not able to see all of those other things. Um, you know, just like, you know, human beings, we have a hard time um, understanding um, and wrapping our, our brains around large numbers. Like for us, 10 trillion is the same as a trillion. 10 trillion is actually a whole lot more than a trillion, but it feels the same. So sometimes abstractions can, can really hide what is there. And it, um, requires someone a little bit more, um, aware. And in this case, my best friend to help me not to help knock me out of my reality bubble, my world of abstraction that I was living in to, to see something else. Um, and I'm, I'm really thankful he did that. Yeah, I am too. And 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 I'm glad you I'm glad you ended there because one of the things we're going to get to, you know, eat Justin the tech the the technical side of things and what you're doing here in a minute. But I one of the things one of the hardest things to do is to properly kind of teach and convince people that are curious because it's so easy to get on a soapbox and start preaching uh and because it is kind of, it is very infuriating what we're doing to not just the planet, but animals. And it's really hard when people don't get it. I don't know if you feel that way. It's very hard for me to kind of communicate what you just communicated about. Hey, you're eating. Did you realize what you're eating is a bird? It was a living being. It was a, it was a being that felt and sensed and, you know, had feelings. That's really hard to do for me anyway, without getting 
kind of crazy about it, right? Especially when there's when there's, in my mind, ignorant pushback from the other side about what they're doing and how they are are they they're fine with willfully staying in their ignorance. And so if you look back on your experience with Josh, your best friend, who kind of presented these ideas to you and convinced you to change things in your own life, what what did he do right? And what could he have done wrong that maybe would have ostracized you from the ideas? You know, I think it starts with something that um, is is hard, but I but I do believe it. And it's starting with the assumption that people are good. Um, and when you start with the assumption that people are more good than bad and saying people are good certainly ain't saying people are perfect because that's not true, but all things being equal, people are more good than bad. When you start there. Um, and I think that's where Josh started with me. I think it, um, it creates a different dynamic because if you really accept the person that you're having a conversation with, um, has more good in them, all things being equal wants to, to do the thing that is doing more good. It, it really allows you to free your mind a bit, um, not be so antagonistic and try to break down some of the abstractions and biases that is very natural for all of us to have. You know, I didn't, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't raised thinking this, right. I didn't think of myself as doing something wrong when I was 10 years old. And, and by the way, I didn't really, uh, start changing how I was eating until I was in my, my late teens, twenties. So even after Josh began opening in my eyes, I still continued eating the same way. I told myself a story about all the protein that I needed to play football. Right. So I have lived and continue to you know, live in imperfect life. So I think r- recognizing that um, people generally do want to do good and recognizing that we're all susceptible to these biases, we're all susceptible to the magic of ab- abstraction, it makes us really challenging to, to see things. It allows us to, to talk to folks and communicate and do some of the work that we're doing with uh, maybe a bit more grace. Um, and I think ultimately that's that's a whole lot more effective than trying to than trying to hammer people um, because you're going to get people to go in their corners and you're not going to you're not going to do any good and uh, that's not what we're here for. If I look back at the people that I have unintentionally or in my immaturity intentionally ostracized, right, just because I was so aggressive in my beliefs, versus the people that I have. Uh, been able to convince to change some things, a lot of things in their eating habits, you're spot on. It is the it is those times when I was able to be patient and also not expect change to happen overnight or over a week or over a month or over a year. We have these ideas, we have these stories that we tell ourselves, as you did. You know, I've got to eat protein because I play football. You know, we have these stories that we continue to tell ourselves. And so, yeah, patience and grace should not deter us from the necessary work of continually trying to convince people through good stories and good data and and the creation of really good products like yours continue to help help people move from not thinking about this at all to the point where they've done they they they've convinced themselves right if if we can get them to convince themselves slowly but surely that moving uh, toward you know veganism or plant based or a products like yours 
that's the best way, right? Is to get them to convince themselves and we don't have to do that work. And we just patiently do it right day after day, week after week, month after month. I'll tell you how, um, how deep this stuff runs and how these, these two examples help me to, to, uh, to make sure that, uh, that I'm not, um, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to people, I think in, in a lot more effective uh, ways. When I walk by a backyard barbecue or tailgate, wherever, and I smell uh, pork or beef or chicken, whatever, grilling, my very first instinctual thought is, damn, that smells good. Yep. Even though, um, almost more than anyone, I know what's actually going on underneath that. I was at second, uh, point is I was at uh, a chicken facility in, um, in Europe and, um, and they were showing me how their chicken products are made. And they took me from the bird to the chicken nugget. And I was watching the last steps of the chicken nugget. And, um, as it was going through, um, as the pan with the chicken nuggets were going through, uh, the, uh, the oven, um, they were getting seasoned at the end. And, uh, my stomach was rumbling and I was feeling like I wanted a chicken nugget. Um, even though I just saw the entire process, even though I know there are 80 billion chickens on the planet right now, and they live to 45 days and they can barely stand up at the end. And, um, they're as much of a bird as, um, the scrub jays that are begging for walnuts. Uh, every day or the peregrine falcons that are the fastest animal on the planet. And it just shows how our brains work, right? Where our brains can be a bit faulty. They can play tricks on us. Um, and the fact that someone like me that knows this so deeply, um, that, I mean, genuinely, like I, I really love birds still at the end of that process. I'm looking at that chicken nugget and being like, man, that looks good. It shows how deep it runs, right? And I think those those insights about myself um, also really inform the kinds of work that that we do, which recognizes that listen, at the end of the day, we got to figure out a way to make stuff taste so good, resonate so much, right? Be so sexy, be so compelling, even if you don't give a damn, right? If you're the opposite of the work that you do on the show, even if you don't give a damn, you're still going to eat it because it's just damn tasty, right? Um, yep. it's, it's cheap. It works. Um, that's what ultimately we're trying to do. That's how we think we're going to shift things. I think those are really good. So one of the, one of the main, if, if, if I had to pinpoint one counter argument that I get most as I post, you know, where we're eating, what we're eating, why we've done what we've done. One of the most common pushbacks that we get is, you know, if we're out, whatever, eating, I had this incredible impossible burger or whatever. One of the biggest pieces of pushback is, well, like, why are you eating so many meat substitutes? Like if you want to be vegan, why don't you eat more like actual plants? And we do eat tons of plants, but why are you eating this thing that tastes like a beef burger? And I always, I never felt bad in the in the whole time that we were this the five years that we were vegetarian, now the almost three years that we've been vegan, I've always felt like that's not a good argument. I didn't stop eating meat 
as you pointed out, because it tastes terrible, because it smells terrible as it's being cooked. I live in Harlem, right? Harlem, uh, Manhattan. And all over the place, people are out on their stoops and out on the sidewalk grilling meat, right? Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, all over the place. And yes, I have that same thought as I walk around my neighborhood is, oh my God, that smells fucking fantastic. Like, and I, and I even reminisce, you talked about chicken wings earlier on. If there's anything that I miss, if there's anything that obviously veganism hasn't been able to replicate because of the whole bone in situation is a chicken wing. I ate so many chicken wings in my twenties and my teens. And yeah, I smell the smell, right? And it's amazing. And I'm, I, what I love about what you just pointed out as someone who's created this incredible company that is trying to change the way people eat and giving really viable, delicious alternatives is that even you walk through this factory, you just saw the process, the, the disgusting process of this nugget being made, and still you wanted one at the end. I think we need to do more of that as people that are trying to change the, uh, the, the, the food game is let people know, hey, we know how good it tastes. We know how great it tastes. We're not not eating it because of that. We're just trying, we're trying to do our part, whether animal cruelty or the environment or whatever. That's what we're trying to do. And in the process, Josh and many others in this game are trying to create alternatives so that to kind of leave people without excuse, right? I don't, we're not going to convince people to not eat uh, you know, a whopper by giving them this really terrible alternative for a burger, right? I eat those sometimes terrible alternatives for a burger. But the way I think that we're going to get a lot of people to come over is by offering them food that is way better for you in the environment and it tastes just like the one that they want, yeah. right? Yeah, it's not uh it's not that I don't want all that. It's just I want I want something, you know, I want something more. I want to the more that I want is to eat in a way that makes me feel a bit more um, a bit more going in the direction of the the human being I'm trying to be. Um, so I still want it, but you know, again, I want, I want something a little bit more. Um, the, the interesting thing about the work that, that we do is on one hand, it's absolutely necessary. Um, and on the other hand, it's completely unnecessary. And I'll, I'm sure we'll talk about the necessary, but let me tell you why it's unnecessary. It's unnecessary because you don't need a dollar in venture capital funding to eat beans, green leafy vegetables, um, whole grains, brown rice, quinoa, et cetera. It's right there, right? It's at, it's at every grocery store, um, almost every grocery store in the country. Um, it doesn't require any invention. It doesn't require any risk-taking. It doesn't require anything. It's right there. And I, I believe it's the healthiest way to eat if you're trying to reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes and dementia. Um, but the reality is that um, not everyone is going to be down with just eating that way. And I can live a life um, in a reality bubble thinking everyone's going to eat that way, but they're just not. Similarly, not everyone is going to bike to work, even if they can bike to work. Not everyone is going to walk to work, even if they can walk to work. Sometimes people want to get in a sexy car. 
And you can try to castigate them for wanting to get in a sexy car. You can, you know, say they don't care about the environment, or you could just make a really sexy car that happens not to emit any carbon. And that's how we think about things, right? It's both completely unnecessary because we could we could transform uh, the state of the planet right now in a moment just by choosing what's available right now without any work from us or any food technology companies. Um, but you know, we're the human animal and the human animal sometimes needs a bit more of a push and, uh, we can lament that, or we can just get to work and, and try to make that happen. Yeah. That's a great point that it is completely unnecessary, but as you pointed out, okay. So 20 years ago, 25 years ago, there were, there, there have been vegans throughout the entirety of history, right? People that didn't eat animal products, but they were very few and they were made fun of in very huge ways. And they were ostracized. And it was always this like this like rogue group of hippies over here in the corner that were doing their own thing. And they're, they're a small group and we really don't pay attention to them. What I think has happened and why your products are unnecessary, but also kind of necessary is, yes, here in our home, one of our favorite meals is simply this. Literally, it's one of our favorite meals to eat. It's rice and beans with roasted vegetables on top. It's one of our favorite meals and we love it and we eat it and it's so healthy and it's so simple and all of these products are directly, right? They're directly from the earth. But the problem is we've tasted what an egg sandwich tastes like, right? Because of our upbringing, because most of us have eaten, grew up eating lots of meat and eggs and, and milk and other animal products, we've tasted these things. We've tasted a great burger We've tasted a milkshake. We've tasted, we could just name all the things that we've tasted that aren't naturally from the ground. And so, yes, on the one hand, as you pointed out, this is unnecessary, but I don't know the numbers. Maybe you do. Like how many more people are converting to plant-based lifestyles because these alternatives have come out and because it's no longer, hey, go eat your salads every day. Uh, go eat your rice and beans, go eat these things. And that's it. Those are the only options. Now we have so many more options and I'm frankly glad for it. We don't eat, we don't eat plant-based burgers every day. We don't eat just egg every single day. But when we want that breakfast for supper, those egg sandwiches, those whatever, like they're there and they're so damn good. And so, yes, I, I, I love that you pointed out this is both necessary and unnecessary, but I think we've, in spite of the unnecessary nature of these products, I'm sure the numbers, and maybe you do know those numbers, I'm sure the numbers of people converting to this way of living has increased exponentially over the last few years. Yeah, it's a, it's a complex story because if you go much further back in the day, um, not, just, not just in the United States, but elsewhere, people eat a lot, ate a lot more plants. I mean, so you go to, you know, whether we're, we're back in hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago in, in Peru or Italy, uh, China, um, plants were much more the primary part of what folks were, were eating. And as we began to really industrialize uh, in the early 19th century, uh, excuse me, in the early 20th century, um, into you know, 1930, 40, 50, um, animal protein uh, really started uh, increasing as a percentage in folks' diets. And today, uh, an American eats more uh, meat um, 
per year than any other uh, country uh, in the world. Um, now, this question of um, uh, you know are are these these alternatives are they helping folks eat less meat? So the answer is yes. People are definitely uh, some folks are definitely eating less. Uh, there's a broad group of folks called flexitarians in the United States. It's a kind of a marketing segmentation term, but to make it easy to think of, um, if you're listening to this, there's probably a good chance you're a flexitarian. You might have oat milk in your refrigerator um, and organic burgers in your freezer, right? If you're that, you're a flexitarian, right? You're not, you're mixing things up. It's not so binary for you. Um, and there's a much higher percentage of flexitarians uh, in the United States, Western Europe, elsewhere than there used to be in the past. However, um, if you zoom back and you ask yourself pretty hard questions like, are people globally consuming more meat today? I should say animal protein, not just meat, including milk and eggs, than they were yesterday, than they were a year ago, than they were 10 years the answer is yes. Mm. Um, and we have to, you know, both acknowledge that there are instances where things are getting better. So meat consumption is dropping in Germany. It's dropping in Switzerland. It's dropping in Norway. Uh, there's an emerging group of flexitarians in the United States. There are more options out there. And yet more folks are eating meat, not just meat, but meat that comes from industrial warehouses today than they were yesterday. Um, and um, if folks are listening or not particularly familiar with you know, the, the underlying reasons why that's a problem, just a few things to keep in mind. One, and the most important thing to me is, why cause harm if you don't have to? Like it's just as basic as that. Why cause harm to an animal or to uh, an area of land, to our planet if you don't have to? That, that to me is the overriding reason. But today we use about a third of the earth's habitable land, a third, to plant soy and corn to feed the animals we eat. A third of our earth to do this. Uh, that's actually more food than we feed the billion people who are going to bed hungry tonight. Um, the way we consume meat has been named the number one cause of zoonotic disease, including the zoonotic disease called COVID. Um, the emissions that come from the consumption of animals are more than all the transportation sources combined. Um, and then finally, um, from a health perspective, there's a guy named Ansel Keys about 40 years ago. He really established uh, the connection between saturated fat and dietary cholesterol and cardiovascular disease. Um, it's not debated in any informed medical circle today. And animal proteins just have a lot more saturated fat and dietary cholesterol than others, right? So there are a lot of reasons, you know, to, to move. Um, but with all that, more people are eating meat today than they were yesterday. And that is a reality that we have to grapple with. Um, and we as a company need to really think through and not be... Um, overwhelmed by it, um, but be informed by it in a way that, uh, you know, we can, we can really ultimately have a, the kind of impact that we're trying to have. It's mind blowing 
the facts that you just stated, especially the overarching fact of that monologue, which was people are eating more meat today than they were yesterday, especially knowing all that we know. And so let's use that as a good pivot point into talking about what you and your team and your company are creating to help people move away from that, move along, be told the right story, be given the right set of facts so they can move along. The company is called Eat Just. You have two, I think, main products that you're creating. Let's start with... We're going to talk about both of them. Let's start with Just Egg, a product that we have used many, many times in our home. Um, one of the reasons that we, we have used... We have, uh, we have this amazing thing that we make from tofu called tofu scramble, and it does the job to kind of mimic what we would get with scrambled eggs. But this is the first product that literally, with very, very little exception, tastes... It, it, it cooks like a scrambled egg. It tastes like a scrambled egg. It's truly, truly amazing what you've created. So talk to us about this product, Just Egg, how it came to fruition, what the, the impact that more and more people using this product could have on the environment. Just talk about this product for a minute. Yeah. Well, so talking about Just Egg really starts with talking about the egg. Um, and when we think about the egg, we think about um, that beautiful thing that we hold in our hand and we crack um, before an omelet uh, appears in a pan. So let's zoom out a little bit. <laughs> so about 2 trillion of those um, were laid last year. 2 trillion eggs were laid last year. Wow. Um, and 2 trillion eggs require many tens of billions of animals. Um, not not just uh, you know some abstract um, tool, but an animal is laying those eggs. And the vast majority of those animals that we call chickens, which are a subset of birds, um, are in cages so small that they can't flap their wings and they hang out there for about two years. And they're fed lots of soy and corn that comes from a third of our world being committed to planting soy and corn to feed the animals we eat. Um, after about two years, they're, quote, spent, um, and then they're turned into uh, forms of cheaper, lower-grade meat. Um, and then we take those eggs, and we hold them in our hands, and we don't think about everything that I just described there, because why would you? Um, so we think, similar to beef, similar to chicken, similar to pork, um, the same underlying issues exist with, with the egg. Um, except the abstraction is probably even more challenging uh, because an egg is just beautiful, right? So it's even yeah. harder to think about those things when you're holding this beautiful, perfect egg because why would anything be wrong with it? So we, we decided that uh, we wanted to do something different um, and we thought there's a better way to make an egg. Better meaning tastier, better meaning lower emissions, better meaning less saturated fat, less dietary cholesterol, i.e. lower risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, type 2 diabetes. Um, and we, uh, we looked around uh, and we searched through many, many, many kinds of different plants to see if we could find a plant that would make a better version of an egg. Uh, and after a few years, we found uh, a bean called the mung bean, which I didn't 
even know existed growing up in Alabama, but the mung bean's been growing for about 4,000 years. Um, and it turns out that there's a protein in the mung bean that actually makes a really tasty egg. So we take the mung bean, we mill it to a flour, and then we have a process of removing the protein from the flour, and we mix it with oil, water, some other uh, basic ingredients, um, and we've got ourselves just egg. So today we're in about 2 million households, well north of 40,000 points of distribution. Uh, you can find us in Birmingham, Alabama, Walmarts, um, Phil's Coffee in the middle of San Francisco and everywhere in between. We sell in China. We sell in Korea. Uh, we'll be launching in Europe uh, at some point. And ultimately, the goal here is to be the, the tastiest, healthiest, and most cost-effective egg uh, through approaching it in this uh, in this way, two trillion chicken eggs per year is what you said, roughly. Hundred million acres of land, fifty something billion gallons of water. That's what it takes to create uh, to kind of uh, supply the eggs that everybody demands, right? In this country, and what what you all have created. I, correct me if I'm wrong on these numbers, but what I saw, what I found was this mung bean. It uses it's way better for the environment. It uses, compared to what I just mentioned with the eggs, it uses 98% less water, 83% less land, and 93% fewer CO2 emissions. That is both mind, those are mind-blowing numbers, and it just seems like a no-brainer to switch when you look at those numbers. When you look at the climate crisis we're in, and you have this viable alternative, it's really really an amazing thing what you all have created. Yeah, the, um, the, the, the acceptance of it has been, has been really awesome to see. And again, not, not just at, at Whole Foods and, and uh, in Austin and Seattle and San Francisco, but um, at, uh, at, at Birmingham, Alabama, Walmarts, right? We're in 2000 plus Walmarts uh, across the country. Um, and, and ultimately, um, you know, having a broader appeal, um, is the way that, you know, you're not only going to build a, a, a bigger company, but you're going to have a much bigger impact. And, and that's, um, you know, for us, that's really, that's really the point. It, it, it's, it's not as impressive that this sells really well at a whole foods, which is where I do some of my shopping. It's way more impressive. What you just said, 2000 Walmarts, not to leaving stereotypes aside. I think we all know that Walmart shoppers are not typically looking for plant-based sort of things. And so that's really, really, really impressive. What I'd love to know before we move on to good meat is are there any downsides, right? Because this is what I always get asked when, and I'm, I'm sure there are. There's we we live in a very imperfect world where no matter what we create, something is being harmed, something is being hurt, even if it's in a very small way. And so, I guess for my own information and for those listening, as I continue to uh, preach the gospel of just ag and try to get more people to use it, and like, are there any downsides to? uh, using the mung bean in this way? Mm. Um, yeah, well, I mean, they include, so we, there are, I mean, it starts with on the farm. So mung beans like other crops are susceptible to that other kind of animal called insects. Um, 
enjoying it. And like other crops, um, there are, even if they're or organic used in other places, uh, they're naturally insects that are being killed to grow all of the crops that we eat. So it starts there and mung beans are, are no different. Um, second is even though it has a much lower carbon footprint than a chicken egg, there's still a carbon emissions consequence of it. Um, and I haven't looked at mung beans compared to just eat our just eggs sort of just compared to eating beans, but I'm almost certain between just eating beans or eating just egg, your carbon footprint would be lower if you just ate beans. So that's, that's the second thing to keep in mind. Um, so those are, those are probably two things that just pop out. Oh, and third, we're in a plastic bottle today. We're moving the liquid version. We're moving out of the plastic bottle. So that's a problem. So those are, those are three things that, uh, um, you know, people should be clear out about that, uh, that relate to just egg. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for even adding a third one, right? You could have stopped it too. I think it's very important for those of us, again, that are trying to get people to move from point A to point B to talk about the downsides because they always, what I have found is they kind of, people sort of lob these things over as if, as if the impression that we're trying to give is that this is a perfect way of living. It is not. There, there is no perfect way of living if we're creating products. And even if we're not, like you said, to to grow any kind of plant, right? Whether it's a whether it's an organic bean or otherwise, there are insects that we have to keep away so that the plant grows well. And so things are always being harmed as we make, as we create, as we grow. And being, as you've said, clear-eyed about that and kind of it'd be better if we talked about those things up front so that they people don't have the room to lob those later on. We already know that this is not a perfect way of living and being. I'll tell you something crazy I learned a few weeks ago. Over one quadrillion insects um, are killed as a result of um, global agriculture. Quadru- I'm talking about having a hard time um, with uh, dealing with large numbers. You know, quadrillion, many, many, many um, trillions. Um, and, you know, that's a, that's a problem. Um, and that, that's a problem for... Um, kale as much as a problem for soy and corn. Yeah, that, that is a mind-blowing, mind-blowing number. Um, for the sake of time, let us move on to, I'm really excited to talk about this for the next few minutes. So we've talked about Just Ag, great product, love it, hope everyone goes and buys it. Good meat. This one to me is both, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm confused by it, I'm excited by it. And I'm excited to hear you talk hmm. about where the idea came from, because it is different than it is different than making a burger out of soy or a burger, yeah, out of pea protein or whatever, which is a lot of what we make the meat alternatives out of. This is a whole different idea th- that you all are pioneering. Um, maybe not the only ones, but you're you're definitely pioneers in this industry. So talk about good meat. Where did it come from, and what exactly is happening? Yeah. So before I talk about the technology, I'll tell you about like what is some assumptions we're making that um, have gotten us here. Um, some of them may be more pessimistic than I would like, but we think it's closer to the truth. So assumption one is people really love eating meat. Um, they love the taste. They love the texture. They love the identity of it. Um, there's 
there was a reason why more people were eating meat today than they were yesterday. Um, and it is really challenging to break through the abstraction. Now, it doesn't mean you can't, but it's really challenging to break through that abstraction. Second assumption we make is uh, plant-based meats have an incredibly important role to play, but they're not enough. And we look at plant-based meats somewhat like I would look at hybrid cars. I think absent hybrid cars, we might not have the electric car transition that's happening globally today, but a hybrid car is not enough. Um, it's not fast enough. It's not safe enough. It's just not enough for the average person to switch over. You need something more. Um, so then we're left with um, this third option, knowing that people you know, just aren't going to eat less meat uh, at the rates that we need. Um, and plant-based meats are important, but they're not going to ultimately be transformative. So we think making real meat, actual animal flesh that doesn't just kind of taste like meat, but literally is meat, is the most effective thing to get us on a path uh, where um, the current system um, is something that is uh, an artifact in history um, and something that is better and, uh, and healthier and kinder and more sustainable is, is our present. Um, you know, the technology of making meat used to make sense, right? We had live animals, we killed them. Um, it was happening at a small scale and I get it. But the way we make meat today, the technology of making meat just doesn't make sense anymore. It doesn't make sense to use a third of our land to plant soy and corn. It doesn't make sense to crowd hundreds of thousands of animals in a warehouse. It just doesn't make sense from a food safety perspective, from a taste perspective, from a cost perspective, from a supply chain perspective. It just doesn't make sense. Um, so what we're trying to do is to make real meat. Um, we want to have the most desired meat on the planet. And instead of starting with a live animal, we start with a cell. Um, and from that single cell, which we can get from an egg, we can get from a cell bank, we can get from a fresh piece of meat if we wanted to, we get it from a biopsy of an animal if we wanted to. We then identify um, components to feed that cell. So think about what an animal might eat. Ultimately, it's broken down into amino acids and salts and sugars. Well, we need amino acids and salts and sugars, et cetera, fats to feed our cell. So we source them. And then we manufacture the, our meat, not in a lab, but in a stainless steel vessel that is enabling these cells to grow and ultimately make raw chicken, beef, pork, whatever you want to make. And then we remove it from the stainless steel vessel, which creates these ideal conditions for our meat to be manufactured. And then we convert it into a chicken nugget, into a chicken strip, into, in the future, ground beef. Um, and in um, December of 2020, in Singapore, we became the first company group of people in the world ever in the history of our food system to sell that new approach to making meat. Um, when five young people sat around a table and started eating it. So it was the first ever commercialization of this, not alternative to meat, but different way of making real meat. And since then, we've been selling every week in Singapore. We've sold with street vendors and high-end restaurants. And you can order um, this week from Food Panda, chicken dumplings and chicken and rice. 
Um, and it's in its very, very early days, very small volume. But ultimately, we think uh, in the years ahead, the majority of meat consumed on the planet will be made in this way. And in the future, it'll make a lot of sense. Um, and we, uh, we just have to get there. Absolutely mind-blowing. I can't even wrap my head around this process you're talking about from cell to when it's ready to be extracted from the stainless steel container and turned into, you know, a, a nugget or whatever. That's really mind-blowing to me. And, and we don't have enough time to get into the intricacies, nor would m- myself or most people listening really even understand, even if you broke it down more than that. I guess one question I have is from the time you extract that cell to the time it's ready to be, ter- you know, turned into whatever, a burger, a, a nugget or whatever, how long are we, how long is that process? Um, it's roughly about about two weeks. Um, wow. Yeah, roughly about two weeks. So just to compare it with um, chicken, since we talked a lot about chickens today. So um, uh, a chicken st- starts with an egg that hatches um, and then you have chick. And th- those chicks would be on a factory floor. You'd have tens of thousands of them on a factory floor. Um, and each day they're growing at an expedited rate. Um, because these chickens on this factory floor are being engineered for you to consume. So they're growing really fast, particularly they're top heavy because breasts are getting more per pound than uh, their thighs would. After about 45 days, they've grown so fast and so large, they can barely stand up and then they're slaughtered. Uh, But all the while for those 45 days, they're consuming soy and corn all day. Um, and that swing corn, as we talked about, is growing somewhere and off in the place that's growing used to be a rainforest, and now it's just a soy field. Um, and then we chop it up, and we have chicken wings, and we don't think anything about it, like I did. Um, so when you think about the process I just described, and maybe you're hearing it, and you're thinking, mm, that sounds a little weird. Make sure you're contrasting the weirdness that you feel with the reality of chicken today. Chicken today isn't. Uh, you know, a nice little chicken named uh, Henrietta dancing, um, dancing under the sun with hawks flying over over her, right? That's not the reality. Um, and what we're trying to do is to say, there's just a different approach that is necessary for the state of our society and our planet today and where we're trying to go. Um, and let's use this different approach. Let's use this technology to try to make a better, safer, saner way of making meat. And what we've seen in Singapore is people are down, especially young people. Young people tell us, listen, I miss meat. I want meat. I want to keep eating it, but I want to feel better about it. This works for me. Um, and that's why we call it good meat. The world you're envisioning, the world, if, if, this, can, if this can be scaled, Chicken, cow, pig, whatever, they can live a long and happy life, never really being harmed, and meat is created. That's, that's it, right? That's the world as they live their natural, normal lives, not being pumped full of hormones and this and that and the other, and we still get the meat, right? Well, yeah, you wouldn't even, I mean, in the case of chicken, 70, 80 billion that uh, are on the planet today, what would happen is you wouldn't, that process would just stop. So the process of hatching new chicks that are there for 45 days, it would just stop. 
it's over, right? And um, and the the stopping of it um, shouldn't be looked at as you know some deep regrettable loss to society. The stopping of it literally means that billions of animals are not going to go through it. The stopping of it means that the increased risk of zoonotic disease that comes from putting animals in those tight conditions is severely reduced. The stopping of it means that all the emissions that that system causes more than all the transportation sources combined are severely reduced. The stopping of it means that we can still eat meat though, right? It's just made in a different way. The thing about, if you go to, um, you know, a fast food restaurant today, or you, um, you know, go to the grocery store and get chicken nuggets or bacon today, those products are made differently than they were in 1920. You don't think about it, but in 1920, in 1820, in 1620, you didn't have a third of our world dedicated to planning food for the animals. You didn't have all these animals crammed in tiny conditions. Um, it made more sense in some ways then, but the way it is today, it's a, it's, it's a different approach to making meat. And we're just saying, listen, let's take another step. Let's try to level up here. Let's take another step to making real meat. Um, let's make it safer. Let's make it in a way where um, you know, we don't have to be anti-meat. We can actually be very pro-meat um, because we're made it in a way that actually makes a whole lot of sense. And your chicken tastes just the same. Amazing. I wish we had more time. I want to respect uh, the time that you've given me here today. I want to end with this. As I was thinking about, as I, as we were going through our conversation, I was thinking about this Paul Goodman quote that I love in his book, Drawing the Line, Political Essays. And I've been, I've been quoting it a lot lately in conversations and passing with people. And here, here's what it says, quote, suppose you had the revolution you were talking and dreaming about. Suppose your side had won and you had the kind of society that you wanted. How would you live, you personally, in that society? Start living that way now, mm. end quote. And I love, I mean, that's it. That's that quote reinforces everything that I'm doing. And it really gives me the, the energy, the strength, the stamina that I'm going to need. And really, Josh, that you're going to need as this is an uphill battle. It's a worthy battle. It's one that you need to continue fighting and I'll continue fighting it in my own way. But really, I, that's what I see happening here is like you're dreaming of what maybe it's not 100% adoption in 100 years. I don't know what the future looks like. What, what is certain is that we have to do something about it. We can't continue to use a third of the land on this planet that we've been given, the one planet we've been given to feed the animals so that we can kill them. That has to stop. There are so many uh, animal cruelty and environmental impact uh, issues that we have to deal with, right? And so... I just wanted to end with that quote to encourage you uh, in the work that you're doing, to thank you for the work that you're doing, because really that's what I see happening right now. You're envisioning what needs to happen in the future, and you're doing it now. Right now, this good meat, it's, in, it's being implemented in a small way in Singapore, and hopefully in five, 10 years, it'll be everywhere, and we'll all get to in, in, enjoy this and wrestle through the implications of what this means for the future. Um, I, I wish we could have more time. Maybe we'll get to do this again. But I really, Josh, um, 
appreciate your time and appreciate what you're doing. I'm really grateful for it. Well, yeah, thanks, my friend. And we, uh, we, uh, we definitely see how dawning the uphill climb is, uh, but we're going to try anyway. We can't think of another option. Yeah, that's it. That That's it. We have an uphill climb, but we have to do it. We have to do it. Josh, thanks so much. Uh, you're amazing. Let's stay in touch. I'm really excited about what you all are doing. And again, grateful for your time today. Thanks, Nick. Damn Givers, thank you so much for showing up and spending time with Josh and me this week. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. Please share this episode with a friend. Please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And please show up next week. We have many more incredible conversations coming your way. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the incredible team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.